For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It is Wednesday, October 4th. I feel like the strikes in Hollywood have served as a kind of mini inflection point for digital media and the creator ecosystem. I'm a big late night show watcher, so until those shows came back this week, I was definitely spending more time on YouTube and even on TikTok, which I never do. At the same time, the strike period has been a weird one for the influencers who operate on the periphery of traditional entertainment. Many either already are or ultimately want to be actors or writers, so they tried really hard not to upset the unions, which have said they will ban anyone from joining who runs afoul of its rules for promotion or any interaction with the struck companies. You don't need me to tell you that influencers and the creator economy is a huge business and getting bigger. But if I asked you who the most powerful influencer online these days is, you'd probably know it's Mr. Beast on YouTube, but you might not know why or how he became so big. Same with the rise and fall of major platforms like MySpace, Vine, Friendster. They were huge until they weren't. When I want to understand the creator world and the online trends that haven't quite made it to the mainstream yet, I usually read Taylor Lorenz who's a columnist for the Washington Post. She wrote a new book called Extremely Online, which chronicles the evolution of social media through the eyes of several creators, from the original mommy blogger to some of the TikTok creators that are dominating today. Craig's on TikTok a lot more than me, and we both went to Taylor's book party the other night. It was funny. He recognized a bunch more people who were complete strangers to me. I recognized Kathy Griffin, who was there for some reason. Anyway, Taylor's been on the show before, so I thought it'd be good to have her back for a check-in. We actually taped the show the morning after her party. Taylor's here to tell us how the strike is impacting influencers, who's winning in the attention economy, why YouTube has failed to create TV-style hits, if TikTok is now a forever utility, and how far we are from the day when Hollywood and the internet fully meld together. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. We are here with Taylor Lorenz, who is the tech columnist for The Washington Post and the author of a very fun new book called Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. Welcome, Taylor. Thanks for having me. So a lot's happened in the world of digital creators, influencers, a subject that we do not talk about enough on the show, I think. It's a huge business and getting bigger, unlike some areas of traditional entertainment. You had a very nice book party last night in Century City, which I attended. And I was talking with an influencer there, someone who is big, according to him, on TikTok. And 
we were talking a little bit about the strike, about the writer's strike and the actor's strike. And he was just shaking his head. He was like, man, I feel bad for them. Like the world's kind of moved on from that form of entertainment. And I was thinking, hmm, interesting that he would say that because the writers certainly don't agree with that assessment. But it is, I think, a sentiment that you hear a lot from digital first creators that the traditional mechanism of Hollywood is kind of passe at this point. They don't really need it to reach an audience. And maybe you can make a little bit of money in the entertainment industry, but you can also make a little bit of money doing your influencer gig as well. So like, where do you fall on that? The professionally produced content creators versus the creator economy? I mean, I do think that you can, it it sort of depends on your ultimate goal. Like some people get into the content creator world basically as a launch pad to entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And the content that they make is very far from traditional entertainment in the sense that it's like vlogging, you know, like the Nelk boys or whatever. They're probably never going to be actors, but they've used their YouTube channel to launch their seltzer brand and gym line and everything. And then, I mean, I also think you also have all these people that actually in the pandemic worked in traditional Hollywood, maybe they were writers or actors, and then started producing things for the internet and now have like a more hybrid, like they can operate in both worlds. And I think they've also seen that like, to make a living these days in entertainment, it's just very hard. Like those acting jobs are very hard to get compared to influencing jobs. I will say though, like it depends on how successful, not everyone can be a successful content creator. And you do like make a lot of money as a working actor. I talked to Brian Morbido, who's an actor in New York for a story a couple months ago. And he was like, I mean, he has 600,000 something on TikTok, but he's like, yeah, I mean, I have my merch shop, but like one, you know, shooting one commercial for a brand one day makes more than that. Right. I am curious what the influencer creator view of the strike is and how it is influencing, to, for lack of a better word, what they do. And you read, and I've followed this a little closely for my own reporting about the strike impacting people who might someday want to be in one of these guilds. They're not currently, and they're walking this line now because they want to make a living as an influencer, but you don't want to post about a studio movie or a brand associated with a struck company Because down the line, you might want to be in one of those guilds and they are watching. They are seeing who is promoting the studio work during the strike. And they have the ability to ban people from ever joining one of these guilds. So what do people think about it? Well, some of them are already in SAG and working under the influencer agreement that SAG introduced in 2021. And then a lot, like you said, want to work with them in the future or join SAG in the future. And I think also there's just a lot of social media pressure, like the broad sentiment is supportive of the strike. And so nobody wants to do anything that would get them sort of involved in internet backlash or make them enemies. And I think that because there's a lot more of these hybrid content creators that maybe do some working acting work, also create content online. Actually, Craig mentioned two of them. We were just talking before, Taylor Grayson and James Mitchell. They're working actors, but they're on strike and they make this series on TikTok that's very narrative. And I just think there's a lot more of these like hybrid people where, and same thing with writers, like you saw all, like again, with COVID, I think COVID was kind of like a test run for a lot of this where like people were out of work for a while and they did turn to the internet and start producing content, building their audience making shows, releasing merch. And so I think it's just like a kind of a, there's just so much more crossover between those industries. I think if this strike happened five years ago, there wouldn't be this 
level of solidarity. I think it's a lot due to TikTok and what COVID did. It's interesting because, you know, you arguably there should be a separate guild for workers of this type, uh, but there isn't. Many have tried and actually... <laughs> Really weird. Yeah. Like there's a bunch of recent ones. There's the creators union 2.0. There was a previous alleged, which is like this weird, it's all run for like companies just trying to ingratiate themselves with creators. Oh, but some of the creator companies were trying to start a quote unquote union to kind of curry favor with some of the creators to get them into their fold. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Did it work? No, <laughs> it has not worked. <laughs> but there's been various efforts, and some of them are, are well-meaning. I mean, Ezra Cooperstein, who's been in the space forever, is working on something that's sort of like this, I think it's like a nonprofit initiative to try to help content creators. Like, there is an acknowledgement that this type of work is very exploitative and that there's no guardrails. And that's why you also see SAG using this strike as a way to, like, talk to content creators and be like, yes, like, come, you know, work with us. We have this influencer agreement. We have this podcaster agreement. You can actually get healthcare through us because being a content creator, you have like no safety net. I'm sure SAG would love to incorporate a lot of these creators to grow the union and get them to be dues paying members and to hopefully help them. Yeah, definitely. All right. So let's talk a little bit about your book, which is a kind of journey of the past 20, 25 years in the development of social media and the people who populate and profit from it. And one thing that struck me about that is there are platforms that come and go. There were some amusing anecdotes about Friendster. There was MySpace. There are these platforms that didn't make it. And then there are the platforms that did make it, often for reasons that were not initially seen by their creators. And the perfect example is YouTube. You know, the origin story for YouTube is still am amusing, but tell me what you learned about the origin story for YouTube. Well, YouTube started as a dating site, right. um, which is hilarious. And people were going to like video date. Um, of course, nobody wanted that, especially in 2005. So people started uploading a lot of like home videos and then a lot of, of course, ripped content, you know, illegal uploads of like late night clips and lazy and Sunday, also, man. Built yeah, YouTube. Exactly. I mean, the lazy Sunday thing is such, was such a moment and like a breakthrough moment for YouTube. That was when this like parody video that Andy Samberg had done for Saturday Night Live. It was a digital short was uploaded on there. It's funny because I was at Hollywood Reporter at the time I had just started and the studios were going nuts over the piracy, they called it piracy at the time, of these clips getting up on YouTube, especially Viacom, which owned The Daily Show. Like at one point, the early YouTube era, a big chunk of the videos on YouTube were Daily Show clips. And you would talk to these legal executives, and I was a lawyer and I was talking to them, and they would be furious, furious about this and sending letters and trying to figure out who to sue and all this stuff. And then I would talk to my colleagues at Hollywood Reporter who were talking to the marketing side of the business. And those people were super pumped. They were excited that all these people were seeing Lazy Sunday and the Daily Show clips, and maybe they'll tune in for the next couple shows. And it was just, it was everything about the way that Hollywood has mismanaged the transition to digital in one story. Because people at the same company had completely different agendas and were fighting with each other over what to do with this. They weren't seeing the big picture, which was, we should have this platform. We should be doing this. We should own the future. They were, they were thinking, how do we sue these people out of existence? 
Yes. And I think it's so hilarious to look back and kind of see who embraced the internet and who didn't and kind of like, especially thinking of it now where everybody's just trying to get their own clips to go viral on TikTok, you know? It's it's essential. You want to open a movie? You have yeah. to have your memes going around. Exactly. Yeah. But it, I mean, it was it was just such a different, like, it was such a different landscape back then. And YouTube obviously was still, it was still sort of unclear what YouTube would be. Um, and I talk a lot about sort of early YouTube and the partner program, which I think was transformative and remains sort of the gold standard for monetizing creator content. Was there anyone that you interviewed for the book where it turned adversarial, that they were oh. not happy about it? I mean... Jimmy Donaldson. I, I didn't get to interview him, but I had he I mean Mr. Beast generally is always kind of unhappy with me. Why? Oh, because I wrote about his business and he was not a good business person. Surprise, a 23-year-old YouTuber couldn't manage hundreds of people. And he didn't like my story that came out about that. Does he attack you? His fans were really angry. But you know, guess what? He hired more business people for his company and he's been doing fine. And I don't know how he feels about me lately, but I would say the only other thing about um, going back and interviewing people, there was a lot of people that were angry at each other and blamed, like, especially around the Vine ending. Sure. And there was a lot of sort of conflicting blame and anger and kind of stuff like that. You must endure a lot of drama. Yeah. I mean, I write about content creators, so drama is... And people that are often not very savvy about media, don't have handlers, and have a venue to lash out at you if they don't like what you are writing about them. Yeah. I always say it's so funny because when like Tucker Carlson started yelling about me and like got doxxed and stuff, I was like, the Jake Paul fans have done anything that Tucker has done to me like 10 times worse. Like, because they got so mad about my Jake. I reported on, you know, a bunch of sexual assault stuff with Jake Paul and his content house. And yeah, I mean, it's a crazy industry, but I think that's what's so crazy. Like, I think it's fun because there's also just so many stories. Why do you think YouTube has been unsuccessful in creating television-style programming? Because they've tried many, many times. They even had a good show. They had Cobra Kai, and nobody watched it on YouTube. It went to Netflix, became a huge hit. Why have they failed? I think that YouTube, what people want from those types of platforms is just different. Like, you don't have the level of resources, and I think it's just inherently not going to be... Like, I think that there's, like, a certain level of, like... Wait, wait. YouTube is Google. They have unlimited yeah, but... resources. They could buy Ryan Murphy tomorrow if they wanted to. You know what? To. You're right. You're right. But there's something about the process, the traditional entertainment process that like wields a different result. Like, I think it's just the tech company thing. Like, I think maybe you're right. Maybe if they like hired all these Hollywood people and I know they've tried over the years to make different forays into entertainment, but YouTube originals are just not ever very good. Honestly, I think they just probably have not invested in it in the way that they should, I guess, if they really wanted to make like a streaming service or something or like make programming. Well, they have YouTube TV. They're trying to compete with the cable companies. It's just funny because they had a good show. They had Cobra Kai, which has now been proven to be a hit on another platform. I just think that you're right in the sense that people just aren't looking for that on YouTube. It's a different mindset. And also just like the way that it's the content is presented to you and served to you is so different. And like you're in a totally different mode. A lot of what people use like YouTube for is also just like informative content. Like they're going there to like learn how to fix their dishwasher or something. It's not right. that they're not like... Tie my bow tie. Yeah. So I just think it's just like the wrong space for it. Right. 
And that brings us to TikTok, because I mentioned, you know, that your book is all about the evolution of all these different platforms and some stick, some don't stick. Where do you think TikTok lies in that hierarchy? Do you think TikTok is going to stick? It'll be here and become a Facebook meta or YouTube or one of the platforms that defines the future of the Internet? Or is TikTok eventually going to go the way of Friendster, MySpace, arguably Snap, that it's not going to define the future of social media? No, definitely. TikTok is here to stay. I mean, yes, yes, undeniably. I mean, for so many reasons. Give Um, me the reasons. Well, first of all, like TikTok is a completely different model of social media than a lot of the US-based social media in the sense that it delivers content purely algorithmically through a feed. So there's no need to get like a single follower on the app, um, which it takes a huge burden off users and just makes people want to, like, it makes it very easy to get going and to share content and know that you're going to like reach the people that you want to reach because the algorithm will theoretically deliver it mm-hmm. to them. Also, TikTok is owned by ByteDance, which is essentially a Facebook and Google of China. I mean, they are a multi-billion dollar Chinese tech conglomerate and they poured a billion dollars in 2019 alone into marketing in the US. So TikTok already has billions of users and has surpassed you know, people spend more time on TikTok than they do Facebook these days, generally anyways. And I, I think that the way that TikTok has pushed this new era of like mobile short form content, like we're not going back. Like this is how people want to consume content. This is how people want to connect with each other. I think you can do a lot with TikTok. I mean, it's just a phenomenal product. And like, look at the success of Musical.ly. TikTok has been a success and, yeah. and it's for Musical.ly for, since 2017. It's been right. a huge, huge, huge culture, like shaping culture too. Like, and I think it's interesting. I mean, you noted um, MySpace. It's so much of the way that MySpace positioned itself in the early aughts was exactly what TikTok ended up being. And don't forget Vine. Craig's upset we didn't mention Vine. Yes. I mean, Vine we, <laughs> Vine walked so TikTok could run. Um, talk about a like app squandering talent. That app sort of famously didn't know how to deal with their content creators and that helped lead to their demise. So when you talk to influencers and people who are gaining followings on these platforms. What's the goal these days? Is the goal to cross over into traditional media? Is the goal to be the D'Amelios and have a Hulu show? No. Is the goal (laughs) to launch a gin brand? What is the goal? I would say for most content creators, the goal is definitely not traditional entertainment. The goal is to basically build their own successful media company, which is what they're doing. And so it's building out their own revenue streams, whether that's podcast, subscription, licensing deals, brands, whatever. But it's like they want to be their own little mini media empires. Like the Don't forget OnlyFans. I mean, yeah, OnlyFans. <laughs> like they, I mean, you can make a ton of money on there. But then, you know, some of them, that's not to say that they're opposed to doing traditional entertainment deals or that they don't dip into that or that they don't also act sometimes or something. But I think for most of them, the goal is the Mr. Beast model, you know, get huge, yeah. run this massive company and make more money than God. And you are the entertainer. You don't need anything in the Hollywood system. Who is the most powerful influencer these days? Is it Mr. Beast? Is it Kim Kardashian? No, I honestly do think it's Jimmy, Mr. Beast. I have to say, I just did a Why? story. Well, so I just did a story. I don't, it's not out yet uh, with my mm-hmm. colleague, Drew Harwell, where we went to Greenville and wrote about sort of the economic impact of the town that he's had. He's, he basically has created this YouTube company town. He's based in Greenville, North Carolina, where he grew up. He is so good at dominating the YouTube. I think what he's done is really like systematize this whole like content operation. Like he's got, you know, all these thumbnail people that optimize thumbnails, people that optimize 
the YouTube title, whatever. He just has, takes such a like data-driven approach, but also is creative, has a massive team of creative people working for him. I just think he's been so successful. But it's a formula is what you're saying. He figured out the formula. Yeah, he's created a formula for himself that's been replicated. I mean, there's channels like Unspeakable, I think that are very Mr. Beast-esque that have like 17 million followers. Like he's created this like formula for success on YouTube. I, I think it's transformed YouTube for better or worse. And he's just been very good at like monetizing, whether it's his like, I mean, his burger chain got into just, I think he's suing oh, them. God. Yeah. But um, he's done these big deals. I mean, look who's involved with Night Media too, is Ezra Cooperstein, who's been around the uh, entertainment industry, or he's been around this industry, I would say, for so long. It's funny because just like there's a formula that he's figured out, it's you can make the analogy to Hollywood and the kinds of formulas that you would see in television and film and things that consistently work. And we're seeing that now evolve on YouTube. A hundred percent. And I would say actually on all content, like TikTok has the same thing. And also people, once somebody finds out what works for them, like, I mean, the subway girl is going viral now and like, there's all these other people doing their versions of it, you know? So it's like these things get replicated very quickly. It's interesting. The question I have is where this is going. No one knows what the next platform is going to be, but what do you see when you talk to creators? What are they interested in creating? What are the frustrations with TikTok that people want to correct or with YouTube that will lead to the next era of innovation? Is it going to be AI? Are there going to be AI creators? There are AI creators. And I mean, I think content creators are very excited about AI because they are generally overworked and don't have enough staff to do like edits and make graphics and stuff. So I think anything that can offload some of that burden, they're excited about those like creative tools. But, you know, everybody's like stress is different with the platforms. I would say like with TikTok, the big complaint is we want sustainable money. We want that stable revenue that YouTube gives. You know, we're tired of this creator fund bullshit. So I think TikTok's great for audience growth, bad for monetization. YouTube's phenomenal generally for monetization, really bad for discovery. I think people have gotten discovered more recently through shorts on there, but like YouTube's so saturated. Instagram, there's also a lot of problems with Instagram. Like they're very arbitrary about what you can post. They'll ban you for whatever, you know, just kind of arbitrary reasons. And what do they ban you for besides nudity? Oh God, there's just content creators are always getting banned for some reason. Like you share a wrong thing or you share um, like a funny image and it's labeled as misinformation. So then your content is downranked and you lose monetization. That happened to content creator recently, just like all these little things. And Instagram doesn't have a good like support system. I would say the same way that YouTube and TikTok seem to. Is Twitter over? Has Elon killed Twitter? You know, Elon has made the same mistake the Vine founders made where it's like they want to control the platform and they want you to like force feed the content that they want you to see on the platform. So I think he's alienated like every big content creator on there. It's just like the, the app is irrelevant. It's always been sort of like three or four, but it's kind of like a joke now. It's a joke, but I still use it. I still go on there to see kind of what's going on. It's much harder to find stuff that's relevant to me now. And they force feed me garbage, you know, Lauren Boebert stuff and <laughs> things that I don't want. But I still use it. I just wonder. I feel like it's kind of, at this point, Twitter might be hard to kill. I don't think Twitter's going to die tomorrow because I think politics and, and media people are still using it too much. And I actually think that the 2024 election is going to carry it. Like, I think it's going to buoy it, actually, because the political people are so addicted to it. Yeah, like, And Trump will come back. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going away. I just think it's going to be like a Tumblr-like death where it sort of just like fades. It's like, yeah, Tumblr's still around, but it's not the Tumblr it was in 2020. 20- 
12. Yeah. All right, Craig has a question. Our resident influencer, Craig. That's right. I wanted to ask you, Taylor, your thoughts on if Hollywood is going to become more and more dependent on influencers rather than the other way around. Like, do you think studios are going to start now reaching out and more or less begging creators to be in their shows so they can promote it rather than creators trying to get themselves an audition? Because like you said, they're not really interested in going the traditional Hollywood path anymore. Yeah, I really think that like the pandemic merged the talent pool more than people realize. Like it used to be these two distinct groups of talent and they were like very hostile to each other, always kind of. And I just think the pandemic brought all these people online to the point that now there's just so much like mishmash and also everyone's broke and trying to make money. And I think like if they can make a little money and be a content creator and also work in traditional Hollywood and have a script and try to write, they keep that door open. I mean, I think that it's all going to get more blended. I think that the internet is becoming the default reality for everything. And I think Hollywood's recognizing the power of the internet more and more. Obviously, they know that it's a huge marketing machine. Another good example is like Brian Jordan Alvarez. He's an actor, right? But, But he's like also this like, he just put out some song and he's doing like content 24 seven and doing cameos. And I just think there's more and more people like that. I think on the marketing side, it's certainly merged. I mean, I know the studios want to engage with whatever people with followings they can. And that's translated into the power of those people increasing. And if you are an actor and you have a huge social following, that's a factor in whether you get jobs now. Yeah, 100%. I don't think it's like so black and white or or it's so like based on followers. It's like, it's more like, hey, look, I'm a creative person. I have a script. I'd love to sell my script. In the meantime, I make TikToks and do social media. And sometimes I do commercial ads or something. It's like everyone's just like doing a lot of piecemeal work. And I think the content creator industry is like a huge part of that. All right, Taylor. Thank you very much. Congrats on the book. Hope you sell it well. Thanks for having me. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, have you checked out this new show on Max called Naked Attraction? You know, no, I haven't. I looked into it. And of course, it's a, it's originally a UK show. They really know how to make compelling reality TV across the pond. They're just better they at do. it. They uh, do. This was a show that I don't think anyone ever thought would air in the US. It is a nude dating show where I'm using the, their description. A, quote, picker selects between six fully nude contestants who are gradually revealed from the feet up. And then they embark on a date. So somebody picks among six nude people. They go out. And then at the end of the show, the picker has to take off their clothes. So it's equal opportunity here. There's a great tagline in the trailer that says, like, we start our dates, how all good dates end naked. Yes. This was a big hit in the UK. And I don't think anyone thought it would come to the US. And it has magically dropped on the Max service, where it instantly went to number one. And my prediction today is that this will be one of the very rare max shows to chart on nielsen for most minutes viewed when it comes up nielsen's a month behind but when it is eligible this will be a charting show on nielsen so is there any censoring at all in the u.s version or is it (laughs) no there's first of all this is not a u.s version this is max picking up the uk version no, I know, they, but I'm, I'm asking, are they blurring anything now? No, that it's on they are the not US blurring service? anything. No. It's the full show. I watched a, an episode this morning just because uh, I saw this prediction. Oh, yeah, just, just for research. Your day? Yeah, for, sure. for research. It's a nice way to start my day. Um, it's exactly what it says it is. It's a naked reality show. Now, they put a whole spin of like sex positivity and body empowerment and yada, yada, yada. But it's 
people evaluating other people's junk to see if they go out, want to go out. <laughs> it feels like this show is going to be like a nude beach where it's fun in theory, but it's kind of off-putting in reality. Yeah, I mean, it's a dating show. So the people are at least a little bit more attractive than you would think you'd see on a nude beach. Those people are usually not attractive. But yeah, it's not like it's the sexiest show in the world. They're literally just like standing there being evaluated. <laughs> the question is, is will there be a U.S. version of this show? Because some of the racier British shows like Love Island and stuff, they have done U.S. versions and they just kind of tame it down. Or my friend James Hibbard at THR is doing the Lord's work on this show. He's publishing many, many stories about the show. And one was an interview with the creator who said that um, we're not sure U.S. audiences are ready for this, meaning they're not necessarily going to do a U.S. version because they don't want to water it down. And uh, they'd rather just have the British version on. But I'm sure if this is a hit, they're going to have the conversation. Should we do a U.S. version? And HBO or Max, I should say, is really the only platform that would air something like this, right? Is there any other streamer that, that is this comfortable with kind of like blatant nudity? I don't know. Do you ever watch you ever watch Sex Life on Netflix? Like there's full frontal yeah. in that show. And, you know, it's yeah, not as that, overt. Again, that's different. That's not. Re and that's not reality. I mean, that's like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, artistic. Right. That's not the point of the show like it is here. <laughs> yes. I talked to a friend at Netflix that told me they have data that shows that a lot of people go to the part of sex life that just shows the dude naked because there's an apparently a like ridiculous naked scene for some dude. And they can tell that people are just going for that scene and then exit. So my point is Netflix is not averse to the nudity stuff. I don't know that they would go to do this show, but honestly, like the only shows that chart on Nielsen on the acquired series typically for Max are Big Bang Theory and Friends. They are the perennials and it's very difficult for them to get shows into there. I mean, they do like House of the Dragon because weirdly, like all HBO shows are considered acquired for Nielsen because they technically air on HBO first, but it's tough for Max to get shows on that list. And I think Naked Attraction will be on there. And if it's the audience has spoken, maybe they'll do a U.S. version. Is this the beginning of the nudity boom? I mean, we're, we're already in a naked renaissance right now. I was going to mention that. You you called it first. There is a naked renaissance going on with the nudity and the R-rated movies this summer. Uh, maybe it's coming to game shows as well. So yeah, look for that on the Nielsen chart. That's the show for today. I want to thank my <laughs> guest, Taylor Lorenz. I'm sure she's honored to be on the show where we're discussing Naked Attraction. Uh, I want to thank producer Craig Horvath, our editor, Jesse Lopez, and you. We will see you later this week. Bye.